Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. On today's episode, I'm joined by political strategist and expert in demographics and Latino politics, a co-founder and former advisor to the Lincoln Project, and a former political director of the California Republican Party, our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike, it's great to have you on again. Great to be with you. Also returning to the Roundup is Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome back, Lucy. Hey, Ron. Hey, Mike. So on today's episode, we're going to discuss the historic second impeachment of Donald Trump, the new criminal investigation in Georgia into the former president's attempts to interfere with the election, and the compounding COVID-induced economic and social crises. So let's dig into the impeachment trial. We've got a lot to get to, but I want to start with the central story of the week, and that is how this impeachment trial has has begun. The proceedings started on Tuesday with a vote on the constitutionality of impeaching a former president. From the House impeachment managers, we saw an overwhelmingly conclusive case, not just against the president, but against the cowardice of congressional Republicans. And we watched harrowing footage of a mob literally hunting down Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. We watched Officer Goodman leading Mitt Romney away from the mob. We watched rioters rifling through desks on the Senate floor saying, I think Ted Cruz would want us to do this. And even Chuck Schumer and his security detail running from rioters. Now, I'm not sure what we should have expected from the Trump defense team, but it was nothing like uh, the completely incoherent spectacle we saw play out in the Senate on Tuesday. Nobody had compliments for Bruce Castor, uh, not even Ted Cruz, who said, I don't think the Trump team lawyers did the most effective job. And he praised Jamie Raskin, who is one of the managers, as impressive. So, Mike, I want to start with you to start, help us think through, you know, how we should see the contrast between the case presented by the House managers, I mean, really laying out the connection between Trump's words and the violence and the president's defense, which is essentially just a process argument. It is not substantive. This was extraordinarily damaging and damning evidence that was presented by the House managers, and it was presented extremely uh, powerfully. And I think that the contrast to which you were alluding is really, is kind of breathtaking. Look, the, the Trump folks know, Trump's defense team knows that they can't argue the facts of the case, so they're going to argue process, right? They're going to argue the only thing that they can. And that contrast between these very emotional visuals and the breathtaking um, new evidence that we saw with how close this came to people being physically harmed or killed and, and how fragile this actual uh, ritual is, uh, I, I think is, is going to be steered in the minds of Americans, especially a lot of those Republicans that have been jumping ship and disaffiliating with the party. And it's forcing a political calculation amongst those members in the chamber whose lives were threatened just beyond those doors in the very same room on the very same floor to choose between continuing this path down the path of damnation or perhaps finally breaking the fever and standing by the quote-unquote principles that they supposedly believed in at one time. 
There's, there, I, they were the victims. They were yeah. the people being assaulted and yeah. still they continue down this path. Yeah. It's a very important moment for people, the American people to look at and recognize at how deep this is going to run. And I want to finally end on this by saying, let me disabuse you of the notion that minds are going to change. When there is a violent insurrection breaking down the door coming after you and you still defend it, they are not going to be swayed by facts. They're not going to be swayed by evidence. And that I believe is where the power is in this argument. I think the Democrats know that. They're putting it up there and forcing these people to double and triple down on this insurgency. And it will last not only the, the lifetime of the careers of those that defend it, but it will be branding the Republican Party as an insurrectionist party for anybody who is of age to be paying attention. So they really are making a bet, Mike. I'm just speaking politically they're making a bet that this insurgency is only going to grow in political power and influence over the next 10 and 20 years, not that they are going to regret this vote or regret uh, not standing up for what is very clearly a violation of the Constitution. The Republicans you're talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about the Republicans. hundred percent. I mean, this is, look, you and I have talked about this at great length, and Lucy's joined us on many of these conversations on this journey. This is the Republican Party. We need to stop referring to this as a faction of the party or a peculiar anomaly or like some quirky little caucus group at state party conventions. This is dominant thought, and it's getting stronger and it's getting bigger. I do believe it's contained within the parameters of the Republican Party. I don't think that there are too many Q adherents or Trump supporters outside of the GOP, you know, architecture. But we, it's it's incumbent upon us and everybody listening and and all Americans of good conscience Mm -hmm. to make sure that it does not spread beyond that. But that's why it's so dangerous, is because it's no longer about democracy. It's no longer about our history, our institutions, or what we value. There is a fundamental core belief that if America is not what they want it to be. It's not America. And when you subscribe to that, you are willing to undertake violence. You are willing to overthrow the government. You are willing to ignore facts and evidence and do whatever it takes to preserve your worldview at all costs. Yeah. Lucy, you made a point a couple of weeks ago about how the GOP thought it could essentially control the crazies, but they've actually taken over control of the bus. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I, I have another question for you, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of reprise that point, given what you've seen this week. Yeah, you know, I, I was reading a piece in Vanity Fair by Peter Hamby that's made the rounds, and the thrust of the piece is... Yes, Trump has a lot of influence, but flashback to Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin had a lot of influence and she receded and Trump's influence is going to recede too. And I read that and I thought, I'm willing to entertain that if you will entertain that the context of someone's influence dying down is in the context of playing whack-a-mole with dozens more Trump view holding folks who currently hold office, who are in the U.S. Senate, who are in Congress, who are in governor's mansions, who are in state legislatures. And so I think that what's more frightening 
about the moment we find ourselves in now is that even as the Republican Party becomes further and further apart in philosophy from normal Americans, the party itself is getting better at concealing some of the views that are so anathema to our American values in the form of members who look and sound much more appealing Mm -hmm. than Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really interested in who were those six members of the Senate who voted to proceed with the impeachment trial, who said, yes, this is constitutional. Right. Because, Because let's be clear, the argument that many of them are making is that this trial isn't even constitutional itself, right? Right, right, right. And and you think about, OK, what does that vote mean for some of these Republicans when you see all this polling coming out? And maybe that'll change, but maybe not of an overwhelming number of Republicans saying that they are less likely to vote for a elected official who supports impeachment now in the next election. So I looked at that list of six senators. It's Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and Pat Toomey. And you can take Mitt Romney and Ben Sass and think, yeah, they're people who have kind of gone to their own drumbeat. Pat Toomey is re- retiring. But when you look at that list of Bill Cassidy, a name we don't hear a lot, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, a thing that they all have in common is that they come from states that are taking different approaches to party politics. Uh, people don't realize that in Louisiana, They don't have partisan primaries. They have a blanket primary. So Bill Cassidy can look at that political calculus and say, oh, uh, I actually just have to make sure that most Louisianans agree with me. Ditto Lisa Murkowski. And so when you look at states that have programs like systems like ranked choice voting, top two or blanket primaries, it's sure this is a case of is it causation or correlation, but you start to see that one of the forces at play here is that we now have a whole lot of senators and Congress people who claim to be representing districts that may be pretty diverse. Maybe they barely eked out their last race, but there's this hurdle ahead of winning re-election, and it is the batshit crazy <laughs> state parties <laughs> that are the means by which they get into office and the increasingly very small numbers of Republican voters who are participating in Republican Party politics. So you bring up a really, a really good point. And and before we move on with the with the impeachment trial itself, Mike, perhaps you could unpack for our listeners the influence on the way we choose elected officials, meaning plurality voting versus ranked choice voting, open primaries versus closed primaries, and the phenomenon that Lucy just identified as having a significant impact on on the incentives for those three Republican senators that she mentioned. And then I want to come back to the trial, but I think this is a really important point that our listeners need to understand because these senators are making very calculated decisions based on the incentives in their own states and their political futures and viability. So can you break that down for folks? Yeah, I think that I think Lucy just made a fascinating yeah, observation. She really did. Quite, quite accurate. Um, <laughs> look, and 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 I think a lot of states are looking at examining what is going on with their parties and trying to tackle this emergent extremism. It's not new, really. It's a dynamic that we've been looking at 
uh, in the in the political model for for probably since the mid 1990s, right? And saying what is what is happening here? Why do we keep having the extremes dominating both sides of the aisle? It's not just a Republican phenomenon. Why are we witnessing this emergence um, in the Democratic and Republican parties? And and it's been making state legislatures uh, very difficult to work and fight and seek compromise. And so at the state level, California being one of those, and as Lucy accurately pointed out, uh, some of the states that, that these senators reside in have all been tackling this question of, of maybe if we if we change the primary process, we could find this center in this centrist space. I, I disagree with a lot of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do believe that Lucy is right, that this is why they're behaving that way. Again, it's a fascinating observation. What I will say is this, and I've, I've said this numerous times, I'm, I'm writing pretty extensively on it. I don't believe that there's a center in American politics. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what is happening in our environment. I believe the right-left axis has essentially tilted on its side, yes. where the right was smaller government, the left was bigger government. Really what has happened is we're talking about haves and have-nots, which explains the emergent populism on both sides. You never heard Donald Trump make a case for smaller government. You never heard a speech about the virtue of smaller government, which was central to every Republican president and presidential campaign since the end of the Second World War. You never heard him give that speech one time. Why? Because he doesn't believe it. Nor does, interestingly enough, the vast majority of Republicans anymore. You don't hear that. It's become a statist, nationalist party. And until we recognize that, we have to remember that discussions of the right-left spectrum don't mean anything mm-hmm. anymore. So a lot of the tinkering on the edges of primaries aren't going to address the fundamental problem. Yeah. Okay. What, what is happening is, in the same way George Washington admonished us and advised us at the very foundation of our country, political parties are dangerous to a democratic system. They will come to seek only their own power and preservation or something along those lines. Yeah. And President Washington was yep. 100% yep. right. And his farewell address. Us what was going to happen in he 2016. Said, beware. Yeah. Beware. Beware yeah. of political parties. And here we are, right? And the one reason why I think is, is President Washington was probably a little bit less optimistic than, than so many people in that he, he recognized that the capacity for what is happening was there with all of this. What I think he maybe for the past 250 years didn't recognize, which is now I think gone is this sentiment amongst Americans that by and large, there was no threat domestically that was trying to tear the country down or tear it apart. Some exceptions, of course, being the Civil War being the greatest exception. But by and large, when people lost an election, they're like, okay, lost the election. Let's try and come back in four years and rebuild and do something different. What we're witnessing now is exactly what Washington was telling us, which is the party exists exclusively for the party. And what makes it particularly dangerous is it believes not in an ideology. It believes that it is the only path forward for America. And if it doesn't win, if it doesn't control power, America is lost. And when you believe that, when you subscribe to that notion, you are more than willing to tear everything down to get it back. And so it's why I believe we are headed into a period, and this is just as we've characterized before, at least I've said it before, this is the the end of the beginning. The Trump era was the beginning of two decades of fire, as I said. We've got 20 years of political violence, of, of attacks on our institutions, a violent, aggressive behavior amongst each other, amongst the parties, 
because the Republican Party is not seeking compromise. When you believe you are the only path forward, there is no compromise. Yeah. Okay. So I'm usually really good about keeping us on topic, but this is so this is really important. First of all, I want to bookmark this conversation because Mike, you we are coming back to a separate conversation about the problem with the left-right axis. And mm-hmm. and we, uh, let's not do that here, but it's a, yeah. that's like I've got a lot to say about that. You've got to, we're going to come back to that. But and we're and we're, and then in this conversation we're also going to come back to impeachment and precedent but while we're here NPR ran a story on Thursday morning about a recent survey by the American Enterprise Institute that found that nearly 3 in 10 Americans just under just under 40% I think it's 39% of Republicans agreed that quote If elected officials will not protect America, the people must do it themselves, even if it requires violent actions, end quote. Now, this survey also found that two-thirds of Republicans believed Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. It was done in the context of months of Trump and his legal team calling the election a fraud and claiming the election was stolen, obviously. And given that and the disposition among some Republicans that they may need to resort to violence to protect America, as they put it. How should we be thinking about the larger role disinformation has played in inciting violence on the 6th and moving forward? Central to answering what is happening here, and and it's a great question, is you have to understand that a very wide swath of Americans have a very unique and specific view of what America is and what the American identity is. And it's not premised on kind of the things that we've always talked about, which are kind of a constitutional framework, representative government, uh, having a peaceful transition of power. Like those things were all very seamless when America was largely homogenous, okay? Our ideas of pluralism and, and diversity have always been easy to discuss when the African-American population is 11% of the population and Latinos are 3% and APIs, Asian Pacific Islanders are 1% or 2%. As that changes, there's something very central to human DNA where these tribal commitments starts to kick in. And this loss of that identity begins to manifest itself by saying Americans are white, we're a Christian nation, and when we become less of those, we are really not America, which is completely antithetical to one another, yeah, right? Exactly. The whole idea right. of America, and we're really going to be challenged with this question over the next 20 years in a way that no generation of Americans ever has before. And that is, what it, do we really believe in the idea of America, that America is a nation that anybody can join, that there are these universal beliefs that are that are the gift and the province of all humanity, regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your 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 gender, your orientation, and and all of these things that we talk about in, in, uh, you know in in modern American vernacular. We have never been challenged with that before. So it's easy to say. But do you really mean it? And the question that we're facing is, at least at this point, we're not doing so well on passing (laughs) that test as Americans. Like we're like maybe a C, C minus, maybe like we got a lot of homework to do to fix this stuff. But 
It's also why, even though I sound like a pessimist on so many of these shows, I'm actually quite optimistic because I believe that as a wide swath of Americans are regressing in their view and moving away from the idea of America, literally the idea of America, that we are a universal nation and regressing to really a tribal white identity group. Mm -hmm. There is an emergent America that is fighting for democracy. In a, in a unique way where Americans have never, I shouldn't say never, in the last 150 years since our civil war, we have not had Americans have to fight other Americans to keep the idea alive. And there's something virtuous about that. That is where the next American generation's character is being forged. And character is always forged by fire. Yeah. It's not forged in easy times. It's forged through the stress of demanding it and requiring that we all think about it and that we all take sides in this fight. Yes. And a majority of Americans are on the idea of, of continuing the American experiment. But there is a very wide swath and faction that says, no, if it's not a white Christian nation, it's not really America. It's not really America. Exactly. Right. And right. that's the tension we find ourselves in. And we will yeah. be defined for the next two decades as this demographically works itself out. Lucy, take it away. Mike Lee, the senator from Utah who yeah. pops up at always exactly the wrong time. Uh, but, you know, he's part of the class of, of politicians who are incredibly highly educated, run in, you know, a kind of sort of elite circle, but have decided to cosplay down-home populism in the last several years. What is, what is cosplay for those uninitiated <laughs> listeners? <laughs> you know, I don't actually, you know, I use these like little terms of art in so, so unartfully. Um, but, you know, he is part of the kind of uh, the trend of yeah. people like Ted Cruz. There was an amazing thing yesterday where Ted Cruz said something about the sound and the fury, uh, you know, in the in yeah. in the impeachment trial. And Andrea Mitchell uh, tweeted, uh, sound and the fury is uh, Faulkner, not Shakespeare. And someone tweeted and said, it gives me no pleasure to say no. Uh, Ted Cruz is right. You know, it's yeah, from Macbeth. It actually is. And, and, yeah. and it was like, way to play, for, way to play to your base, Ted. Um, <laughs> but Mike Lee wrote last year, and I just pulled it up because it was so shocking. He wrote this last October. He said, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. And that is like sums up what Mike is saying. We want the human condition to flourish. Which humans? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which yeah. condition? And you see this with the impeachment. I mean, the a, a Republican leader in Michigan took heat this week because he uh, has kind of been caught with his pants down in some of his, his comments about the Capitol rioters. But one of the things that he did say publicly was, these are, I'm not justifying the violence, but these are oppressed and depressed people who feel bad and and that you have a whole class of Republican leaders who view storming the Capitol, disrupting the peaceful transfer of power in the U.S. You know, I've been thinking as the impeachment hearings have gone on that there is a real aspect of this that feels like 9-11. Mm. Like we can never put this back in the bottle. There is nothing, we can never undo this scar. I think people remember 
people who are old enough to remember 9-11, people over 30 say, remember how when that happened, the idea of that happening in New York here, just that can never be undone. And I think that what happened on January 6th is the same. But, but they're but they're different in one sorry to interrupt you, but they're yeah. different in one crucial way. And maybe maybe this is where you're going with this, but, yes. but in 9-11, one it was easy for us to you to characterize who the this enemy attack, was. But who the enemy was. Exactly. It was an attack from without, not from within. January 6th happened here by us. Mm-hmm. We, like Americans were here and they did this. And so most of us can see that. Most of us can see that. What happened was terrible, and this is something that is a, going to be a horrible scar because it happened inside by our own fellow citizens. But you see all this false equivalency between that and social justice movements of last summer, and the flexibility, the the mental gymnastics of Republicans and Republican talking heads and Republican politicians to be able to extend so much sympathy to violent criminals (laughs) and no empathy to, by and large, overwhelmingly peaceful protesters who went out to try to speak out against centuries of horrible injustices last summer. And so when you see that kind of display it's impossible to not think that Mike is really on to something about which humans is it yeah. that are part of the human condition that someone like Mike Lee is talking about. Yes. So I, I'd love for you to actually expand on this piece because in our last episode, I spoke to former Senator Doug Jones about impeachment and how ahead of it and how he would prosecute the case. And one of the case one of the points he made was that this trial isn't really about Donald Trump. It's about future presidents and future generations of America. And so sort of building on the case that you just made, how should we be thinking about how acquitting Trump could impact future presidents? Let me answer that question a slightly different way, but by sharing something that really occurred to me when I was watching uh, the impeachment proceedings begin. I kept thinking, why is this so much more jarring and moving and compelling than the last impeachment trial? And it's not just that there was violence associated with it. It's because what happened with Trump and Ukraine was horrible, horrible. But it's that we have footage. (laughs) We have footage of it. And so... Plenty of talking heads, especially those on the right, have taken issue with the Democrats' impeachment strategy here. They only brought one article. It's focused on whether Trump incited insurrection. And they have said, no, there are other things you could get Trump on. And this is um, this is not going to go anywhere. And all of these Republicans, we're going to see all these Republican senators acquit him. So it's not going anywhere. And I started thinking about this and I thought, well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Watching Republican senators watch the footage and still throwing up their hands and saying, nothing to see here. Uh, Lindsey Graham said something like that it was offensive and absurd. So I think that we can say, yes, we saw news clips of this before. Yeah, we all watch the news, we read the news, whatever. But there is something markedly different about 
the country being gripped by watching impeachment proceedings where we are all in real time together each day, each night, taking in these unbelievably disturbing images. And they have done a good job. The House managers have done a good job of really shedding a lot of the partisanship. They were talking yesterday about what a patriot Mike Pence was and talking about Republicans who were being targeted by these people. And so I think the acquittal, of I would be very surprised if Trump is not acquitted. But I think that there is something to be said for the fact that we are going to watch these Republican senators acquit him. And I think that, yes, I I, I don't think that this is going to be very consequential for future presidents, but I think it will be very, very consequential for the Republican Party. I do not think that the Republican Party will be able to recover from this over the long term. Yeah. And I think, Mike, I see you nodding and I want you to weigh in on this because we've now... I think we've I think we've we've painted a very very vivid backdrop of the incentives and the reasons that these Republican senators are behaving the way they are and I just want to look look ahead now to the consequences for future generations if the Senate doesn't take any meaningful action against the person who instigated the violent attack on January 6th I think Lucy characterizes extremely well by saying this may not be consequential for individual members of the legislature, individual senators, but it will be extremely consequential uh, for the party. And I think it will be extremely consequential in the history of this country. And, And here's why. In looking at the parallels, again, of the debate on the slavery question during the Civil War, yeah, you were never going to move Southern senators off of their votes. You, there's no amount of evidence that you could demonstrate would suggest that black people were human beings because they would never compromise on that because once they did, the entire argument was lost. Mm. Um, I, I, would, I would submit to you that's the same mentality of what we're talking about right now is there's a genuine belief to our previous part of this discussion that if you capitulate on this, if you capitulate on Trump and Trumpism, you're capitulating on America. You're capitulating on the whole framework and idea. So facts don't matter in that scenario. Evidence does not matter in that scenario. There will be no movement. And like we witnessed as a country 150 years ago, there were very tortured, very tortured debates on that same Senate floor where these senators are debating now about the Missouri Compromise, about which states we would allow in as free and slave states. We talked and we spoke at Cooper Union with the yeah. right mate's mic speech, which is the exact same debate. That's right. And it was a very apparent that the politics of the day did not allow for a segment of the, of the Democratic Party at that time in the South to move off of the slavery question. It was not. And America had a decision to make. It was a very important and consequential one. Can we live with slavery being where it's at and still maintain union? Lincoln, Lincoln, the, for him, the answer was yes, until it wasn't. It was yes, union was the most important thing. It's the same debate we're having right now about unity, right? It is. You're is, right. Do, it is. It, should unity be the ultimate goal? Is that the right question? I don't believe that it is. I believe that Lincoln didn't think it was a mistake, candidly, 
that the overemphasis on union allowed us to say America has a place for slavers and former slavers and white supremacists. I don't want to be in union with that anymore. I think America has an opportunity to absolve itself from the wounds of our original sin and the second phase, which brought us to a great civil war that saw an extraordinary amount of our population die trying to struggle with this question. That doesn't just go away with the last shot fired in a war. It's lasted through Jim Crow. It's lasted through segregation. It's lasted through the civil rights struggle because we emphasized union above all else. It's why I've been saying publicly insurrections, insurrections must be smashed. They must be smashed. And and even though we know these, these Republican senators will not go up on this vote, they should be held to account for history's account. And as Lucy just said, that's the most consequential aspect of this, is this is not something that is just going to be swept under the rug. Every Republican senator should have their children's children remember where they stood and where their names will be written and marked in history, because this is a consequential vote, probably one of the top 10 in our nation's history by defining who we are, what we will tolerate, what we will allow, and what is really at its core, the essence of the American identity. So I feel like this is the perfect place to leave this topic. Um, but I, but I, I, I am curious about one other thing, which is what, what do you think this will do to the voting patterns of uh, not to, outside of the Republican Party, within the Republican Party, but sort of across electorates in general elections? Do you think this is actually going to you know, cement the Democratic Party's dominance for the next 10 years, what are we going to see play out across the board? What, you know what I mean? From a political, uh, from a political standpoint, and I'd love to hear both of your takes on this. Yeah, I think that it's hard to say because it's certainly, we talked about sort of the broad, broad strokes, broad sort of category of democracy reforms, like ways Mm -hmm. to tinker out around elections. And, and I think episodes like this certainly really have helped to generate support for those kinds of movements. So, uh, you know, a state that we have not talked about, uh, but that now no longer even has Republicans in office to participate in this abominable move by uh, Republican senators is Georgia, because through their Mm -hmm. (laughs) top two system, they just got rid of. We're going to talk about that next. Yeah. Uh, But but I think that you may see um, you may see some Republicans uh, who are trying to do the right thing, whether in the House or in the Senate, um, lose their jobs. But you may also see repeats of kind of episodes like something that Lisa Murkowski has gone through before, right? Being rejected by one's own party and then waging uh, a bid as an independent. Um, I I think that there are a lot of ways uh, that this could play out. But I think that we talked recently about the exodus of of Republicans. And Mike pointed out the last time we did this that, you know, you even see exodus on voter rolls of in states where people have to literally go into oh, yeah, right. the yeah. county clerk's office or the election office to, you know, there's like a dozen-ish states that still require that. Even they are driving, getting in the car in a pandemic and driving to take the <laughs> the level of effort involved yeah, in changing right, your voter registration right, in some places very high right. yeah and and so i think we may see another little uh a, another episode of that another little flurry of activity like that because now i mean if january 6 caused you to do that then how does relitigating january 6 and watching 
the vast majority of Republicans say nothing to see here. What effect does that have on you? Right. Yeah. Mike? It's important to remember that Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the late eight last eight national oh, contests. Good point. Yes. The yeah. math will continue to move in that direction where we will continue to see larger and larger gains. Uh, and the, the, the spread between the Democratic victor in the popular vote count and the loser is a Republican uh, in the popular vote count. The Electoral College, of course, remains a thorn in the side. Um, but again, I, and, I'm, and, I'm a, and, and this may shock some people, but I'm a, I'm a very big believer in the Electoral College because it, it does, the whole purpose is in many ways to protect and preserve union. It's, it was set up at the same time the Senate was set up. And I think if you're against one, you've got to be against the other. So having said that, and let's not go down that road. Yeah, another time. <laughs> what Lucy is saying is exactly right, right? And we talked about this in the presidential campaign when we developed, and, and you and I were implementing this new Southern strategy. We're looking at states in the Sun Belt that are changing. Arizona, for example, not too long ago, uh, had a very different composition of its partisan registration. Lucy can speak to that better than anybody. Georgia now has two Democratic U.S. senators. Right. There are other states that are moving in this direction, Texas being one of them. And Texas is always fool's gold. North Carolina is is peripherally. It's moving. It's tightening up. There are, however, other states that are moving towards a more Republican or more Trumpy direction. Uh, states like Iowa, um, some of the Great Lakes states, uh, Wisconsin was much more voted, much more conservative than I think a lot of the prognosticators were suggesting. And they have been for the last three or four election cycles. In many ways, this is ironic. The, soul, the old South, our old stereotypes of the South are moving North, and our old stereotypes of the North are moving South, where the Sunbelt states are actually going to be the new base uh, for the next generation of the Democratic Party, and the Midwest, Northern Great Lake states, Rust Belt states, will be the base for the, the, the next generation of Republicans. And the reason is because of the number of non-college-educated white voters who refuse to, uh, to acknowledge a changing America and are doubling down that, again, America can only be a white Christian nation. Now, it's not exclusive to non-college educated whites. There's a lot of college educated whites that are right there too saying, again, it's very tribal. It's very biological. It's very DNA. It's very human to have a kind of some of these reactions when the perception is you're losing status or you're losing some sort of leverage in a society. And that perceived loss, because it is really truly perception, let's be honest about it. It's a perceived loss is what is we manifest as economic anxiety and blaming the other and allowing the whataboutism, which defines all of our political vernacular. Well, yeah, they may have stormed the Capitol, but what about all the Black Lives Matter protesters that were taking over federal office buildings and burning down post offices? It's like, yeah. okay, that's like a crazy difference. Yeah. But but <laughs> you know, let's not, you know, when, when yeah. somebody brings up those arguments, yeah. like that, that just is it's just nuts, right? right? But that's right. that's the false comparison, right. false equivalency, so, yeah, false equivalency. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so so that's that's where we're at, right? And so electorally, what should be. This widening gap between Republicans and Democrats as America becomes more diverse, the geographic dispersion of this shrinking and intense base of Republicans, specifically non-college educated whites, is locked in an area and in states that allows for electoral competitiveness. They also, interestingly enough, tend to have economies that are over-reliant on industries of the past. You don't see high-tech companies moving to Cincinnati or Lansing. Right. right. You see them moving to Charlotte. Yep. You see them moving to Atlanta. Yep. You see them moving to Phoenix, 
right? Austin, like that's happening in the Sunbelt states. It's not happening in the Great Lakes. People aren't going like Erie, Pennsylvania. We need a new Google headquarters there, right? Like that's not happening, right? And so what is left behind is kind of this old American carnage that Donald Trump was talking to, this specific base. And when it's tied with white grievance and the ability to blame other people, it becomes a very potent force. So um, I hope that answered the question electorally, is, is that the, the popular vote is getting wider. And it's why I always counsel in the end, of, at the end of the day, people who support the American experiment and are seeing this new emergent America will continue to outnumber those that are violently pushing against the change. The problem is they are violently pushing against the change, and that's a danger to the republic and the institutions because they have no regard for them. This will not – the next 20 years will not be a peaceful transition of power, okay? It's a good way to put it. Well, that's uh, a really good way to put it. And that's what is happening, and it's what's going to happen is this demographic bubble we're working through you know, moves its way through. Okay, let's turn to Georgia and the criminal investigation there uh, regarding election interference. So on last week's roundup, we talked about the multiple probes into alleged tax fraud by the Trump Organization and family businesses. And then on Wednesday, we learned that Fulton County prosecutor uh, Fannie Willis asked officials within the state government, including Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, to preserve documents related to an investigation into attempts to influence Georgia's 2020 presidential election, according to the New York Times. This is part of a criminal investigation into uh, attempts to influence the state's elections and specifically into Trump's call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which he suggested the secretary find enough votes to overturn the election outcome, find in air quotes. Trump's calls to Governor Kemp and Georgia State Investigator are also part of the inquiry. And according to the Times, Trump's calls with these officials may have violated at least three state laws. So it seems like, you know, we've got more more perfect phone calls by the 45th president are now under intense scrutiny. Mike, considering our conversation last week, what does this new investigation portend for the former president? Well, look, I think this is very significant. And it might be because I'm a political practitioner and I know the gravity of what this means as opposed to kind of the financial problems that he's running to in New York State. Yeah. But this is he's is, the professional term I think is he's in deep shit. And the reason why I think God Rafsenberger was smart enough to tape these conversations, he had the foresight and he the knew. vision and the understanding that he would come after him. Yep. And so he taped these conversations. I mean, that's exhibit A. You listen to that one hour phone call. And he's clearly saying, as you said in air quotes, finding these votes. He's telling him as closely as you possibly can and clearly leading him in the direction to steal the election. And he'll become a national hero and people will love him if he goes out and corrupts our our democratic process. Uh, That 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 has huge implications. And again, these, these are the states taking it upon themselves to start pushing for criminal. And this is, this is a crime, right? This isn't a civil issue. This yeah. is criming. This yes. is jail time. <laughs> criming. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so th- this, th- this is very serious. The fact that they're moving in this direction, I think demonstrates that they believe the evidence is there. I think as a non-lawyer, as a layman, but as somebody who's, who's been involved in politics for some time, when I look at what was being said, that is clearly an attempt 
attempt to uh, overturn an election. I mean, guys, that's what the that's what this was yep. about. That's what it's always been about. Is he's trying to cheat? He's yeah. trying to steal. And he's get other people to, to cheat for him and get other people to be the bag men for him. It's the Trump way. It's what he does. And so I think, again, um, this is going to have extraordinary consequences, and I don't think it can be just chalked up and saying, oh, it's just Trump being Trump, and he was powerful, so he'll get away with it. I think there are enough vested powers, both in New York State on the financial side and increasingly in Georgia on the electoral side, to say, this guy's facing some very serious consequences for trying to steal an election. Yes. Go ahead, Lucy. It may also give, I I agree that I think that the Georgia... Uh, looming Georgia criminal probe is really different than the financial stuff and yeah. really different than just like, yeah, Donald Trump's a corrupt businessman. But I'll say two things. Well, we knew that. One, yeah. We did. <laughs> one, one a little funny, one not. One really funny thing was when uh, the, Fulton, the Fulton County prosecutor basically asking the Secretary of State's office and other public bodies to preserve documents. And I had this moment like, well, I mean, don't we always want government to be preserved? <laughs> what are the public no, records laws like? <laughs> but but that aside, Jason Miller uh, came out and said, you know, sort of Trump bagman for life, said, well, it, there's nothing to see here because both parties had lawyers on the call. Like you are immune from everything if you just have <laughs> your lawyer on the call where you ask someone to go commit election fraud for you. So I think that in the case of Georgia, one of the things that will be really interesting to see is, does this create a different kind of cover for Republicans like Brad Raffensperger, who may have aspirations for higher office um, or just to continue to stay in office if, you know, some of the heat that could come on them from hardcore Republicans in Georgia, like you didn't stand with the president, you were kind of disloyal, will a, a criminal probe and sort of subsequent proceedings, will it have the effect of giving them more credit, like cover? Like, yeah, this was totally illegal and criminal. Or will it be another chance for the Trump cult to show their extreme degree of loyalty to Trump that even then Raffensperger is even more at fault? I don't know the answer to that, but I think this is a chance to find out. That's exactly what I want to ask you, like whether this investigation, like what it could mean for Trump's co-conspirators who helped promulgate you know, the the big lie about the election being stolen and who may, you know, have also unduly tried to influence the election. And I'm thinking about Lindsey Graham and his calls to uh, officials in Georgia, uh, Nevada, Arizona, um, at least those three. Th- those are the three that we know about. Right. What what could this mean for for them, for Graham specifically? But, you know, the others who who sort of, you know, co- collaborated with him to do this. Well, uh, let me speak politically if I could for a second, because obviously I'm not, you know, qualified to speak on the legal implications. But I think we're going to start seeing uh, on the Trump stuff specifically, the Trump loyalist thing specifically, you're going to see more and more people falling off, kind of like dying leaves at at, at fall time, right? Eventually they will all come down. It's going to take a long time, but they are going to start dropping off. And you started to see this during the interregnum when Barr was like, okay, I'm tapping out, like I can't do it, can't go that far. Um, you're seeing now six senators, which is obviously a shamefully low number, but it is bigger than we saw a year ago during the last impeachment hearings, right? Yeah. There's this breaking that is happening. There will be a strong core Trump group of supporters forever. I think there will probably be annual pilgrimages to his grave site for decades after this is gone, right? That's just going to be part of what this is. 
But having said that, Trump's leaving the scene slowly and gradually and painfully does not diminish the threat of what he tapped into. That's mm-hmm. going to be with us for for some time, for at least, I think, in a very visceral way for at least 20 years, for two decades. And I think that we're just going to have to work that out. But politically, it's very damning. There are fewer and fewer friends, fewer and fewer supporters and public opinion is moving further and further away. I think the conundrum still exists for these Republicans because remember, as the Republican Party shrinks and it is shrinking, it's going to become more intense. The loyalists are those that are going to remain. Every person who taps out is a more, and I hate the term moderate, but it's a more reasoned, reasonable voice that leaves, leaving only the most extremist elements. And that when that remains and that's your party and that's where you've chosen to cast your lot, you have to reflect that. It gets harder. It gets harder for you to stay in the party and stray from from what the party mandates you say, act, and and do. So that's the real conundrum. Is and look, that's been again. I'm a California. California Republican Party is one of the most extreme parties, yeah. state parties yeah. in in the country. People don't think that because like oh, the California, California. right? Yeah. yeah, but it's not. It's an extremely, right. extremely. Um, orthodox, rigid, loyalty-demanding, right-wing party. And so if you don't go lock, stock, and barrel with what the party dictates, you're out. They'll get rid of you. I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I want to also talk about the compounding COVID crises uh, here. So for close to a year now, we've watched the COVID-19 pandemic bring about crisis after crisis. We're dealing with, you know, obviously the public health crisis of controlling the spread of the virus. And, you know, we have we have the vaccine rollout distribution issue that we have PPE issues, but we also have an economic crisis and education crisis and a mental health crisis um, that that Mary Trump and I talked about a couple of episodes back. And now that Biden is in office, we're seeing an administration really take the virus seriously for the first time and really trying to mitigate the impact it's had, but we're still seeing the crises. So first, I want to dive into the economic crisis because it wasn't caused by traditional political or financial forces. And we've learned that women and especially women of color are disproportionately bearing job losses. Some 275,000 women left the workforce last month, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, compared with 71,000 men. So, um, you know, I want to hear from both of you on this, but um, Lucy, how should we be thinking about today's economic woes compared to, for example, the Great Recession and who it's hitting the hardest? That's a good question. I think that there's another piece of the kind of story of why it's impacting women disproportionately, which is that women are the main child providers in many, Mm -hmm. many families. Mm -hmm. So it's also hard to look for a job or hard to manage your job um, when you also are trying to uh, coax and and sort of like calm your screaming children who are doing virtual school and can't get the Zoom to work or any number of challenges that come up for 
parents, but especially moms every day. There was a, the New York Times had a, a hotline that they put up last year and it, it was just, you could call and they called it the primal scream line. You could just call and scream. And it's a lot of women, a lot of moms calling in and saying, um, I don't even have time to be anxious or feel oh. because I, uh, every day I think all I can do is just get through the day. Some of them literally call and scream. Um, so I think that it's obvious why <laughs> it has hurt some uh, Americans more than others. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens as, uh, as Congress takes up the COVID relief bill. I think that when you look at, um, at last year's well-intentioned programs, but kind of disaster over PPP loans, where you really had a lot of very affluent people uh, enriching themselves through the PPP program and not a lot of uh, effectiveness at targeting people who needed help most. And some of that is just a function of, we had no idea. We now have the benefit of hindsight. We had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea what the economic ramifications were going to be, but the kind of steady high market performance, I think, reflects the fact that, and still so many people hurting and out of work, that we didn't get it quite right. And so I think looking at what comes out of that bill, whether or not there's targeted stimulus for yeah. folks who actually have suffered will is important. And I think that the the debate over schools reopening yeah. is really interesting. You know, that gets to some of our um, ongoing questions about vaccines. But but Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director last week, really stressed that she thinks there are other things that we can do to mitigate absence of vaccines in some places and said, you know, vaccination of, uh, is not a prerequisite for reopening schools. And you've even heard some tension even with the the Biden plan to- Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, to, to get schools open one day a week and a lot of a lot of Americans saying, well, that's not enough. It's not enough for my kids mm-hmm. to be in school one day a week. I need so much more yeah. help from that. So, and you see new issues coming up between Democrats and teachers unions, the traditional allies. It's just, it's almost like now that we are, we're still in crisis, of course, but that we're able to start having some actual debate about what's the best way to move forward with right. this in right. the absence of, of kind of, um, the election and Republicans dominating everything. So can you drill into this a little bit? Um, first, sort of set the backdrop about the relationship between opening schools and and getting the economy going. But also, I'd love for you to uh, just unpack a little bit of the competing interests that are that are at play here when we're talking about education and reopening schools. Because you mentioned the teachers unions, and then we have and we have parents and administrators and public health officials. Can you talk about how like I, we're having this really rich debate, and I just want our listeners to understand, even without even without a recommendation or a solution here, I want them to understand the different factions at, at play here and their interests. Sure. So I think in general, anything around the education reform space has always been traditionally fraught, yeah. um, and and people think of it as a when we had. Uh, when we had political forces and factions that we understood, um, you know, (laughs) it was, it was thought of as sort of like a third rail issue um, because, you know, teachers and teachers unions are a huge constituency traditionally of 
Democrats and in Democratic politics. Um, but there's increasingly this tension around the COVID issue because you have Democratic lawmakers, whether they're at the city level, county level, school district level, federal level, saying we need to get schools reopened. And you have a lot of teachers unions saying, well, our teachers are having trouble getting vaccinated. And so you can really see it's such a tough issue because you can really see both sides. And there has been just so much, um, I would say, uh, reductionist stuff in in mm-hmm. looking at at, at what mm-hmm. t- there's been really, and, and I say this as a person who came out of a tradition of doing a lot of what probably people on the left would think of as like anti-union work, like public sector union reform. That's was my bread and butter for a long time. But I really, my heart really goes out to a lot of these teachers um, because they're in such a tough spot. It is not that there's horrible, just ridiculous sort of reporting out there that teachers don't want to go back into the classrooms that are refusing. A lot of them just are very worried about COVID and have not been able to get vaccinated. But then on the other hand, you have moms and dads and kids who are having a really hard time at home. I mean, some of the, some American children who are in most need of being in school full-time are falling behind because they're not from families that are able to keep up with what they'd be getting in school. A lot of families also feel like we, we've we got to get our kids back in school. And so it, it really is an issue that I think um, is tough because you can really see it from both sides. But it is one of those issues that is a good chance to remind ourselves that I think in general, when you when you push aside the kind of disin, disingenuous and sort of cynical right. coverage of this issue, it is a problem. There's not an easy answer here. And it really, I truly believe, is an issue where the stakeholders all are trying to do what they think is best, yeah. whether it's parents who say, get my kids back at school or teachers who say, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of going back to the classroom. I think most of the true stakeholders in this issue really are coming to it with the best intentions, in which good faith. is in good faith. And and that's, you know, as we know, often not the case. So, Mike, um, in a CBS News interview with Nora O'Donnell, President Biden called the disproportionate weight of the recession carried by women a national emergency in and of itself. And I, I want to get your take on how that framing can help move us forward and what, what you think he's trying to do there. I think it's uh, really insightful and it's a really smart way to move it forward. And I also think that the policy decisions that we make in the next 90 days will probably determine uh, the way the next generation of Americans kind of views so much of the world. Mm. I think they're going to be that consequential. And then part of this started with your discussion with Mary Trump and 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 even Lucy just referencing the fact that we are at this moment. And it's important when you listen to this to remember we are as a country beginning to have discussions about what comes next. That's hopeful. Yes. That, that means we've kind of at least in perception or reality, we are mentally turning a corner after a year of watching the numbers get worse, watching the government flail or or ignore it. We are starting to say, okay, what comes next? And that's that's a good thing. The bad thing is there's going to be massive challenges on the mental health front, as Mary Trump was saying, this this book reckoning that she's talking about, which will be absolutely it's fascinating. Um, the disparity with women, uh, as the president is pointing out with Nora O'Donnell on that interview, um, 
and minorities. Remember, there's a very yeah. big policy. Yeah. There's a very big policy decision that needs to be made. And I'm not going to pass judgment. I'm just grateful I don't have to make it. We know that this virus is disproportionately infecting and killing people of color. We also know that the essential workforce is disproportionately made up of these same people. Mm-hmm. We also know that we are making a policy decision in most states to vaccinate older people because they're the most susceptible if they get it. We also know that those same older people are overwhelmingly white. So what we're saying is it's a Hobbesian choice. It's a horrible choice. Yeah. Is do we put the limited amount of vaccines we have into the arms of older white citizens knowing that COVID is disproportionately impacting and on fire with the essential people that we need to keep things going, increase the likelihood that their families are impacted and we know that they're dying at a far, far greater rate. That's a tough, tough policy decision that that government officials are having to make. It's yeah. not an easy decision. Yeah. And so when, when the president goes out there and frames it this way, I think he's trying to not only build up popular support, but recognize that the, the policy decisions that they're making are going to have to be remedied yeah. because we are exacerbating dramatically the, the, the wealth gap. The, the coronavirus, this epoch, this period of time is going to see those essential workers fall dramatically behind those that had the luxury candidly. And they don't doesn't feel like a luxury, but the luxury of staying at home and having your kids go to Zoom school upstairs or downstairs while you're able to work remotely, those essential workers don't have that ability. They're the ones that are moving food products. Those are the ones that are making the rest of us able to be able to live like this to protect ourselves. Yeah. And so the economy, I mean, housing prices are still moving up right. dramatically. Right. The stock market and equity markets are still doing remarkably. White collar, high tech workers are doing really, really well. Yeah. Blue collar workers in the service industry are not only falling further and further behind, they're dying and getting sick at rates greater than we are. Yeah. This is going to matter. This is not going to be reconciled with one stimulus package right. or one, right. one budget that's done next year. This is going to last generations. The the children that are most likely to be at risk and fall further and further behind in school under normal circumstances are are learning on Zoom. They're not learning. They they may be attending, but they're not learning. And and that year, these are critical years in in the formation of a generation's ability to compete in, in a new economy. We're losing a disproportionately people who need to, to, to get caught up um, at a rate that I don't know that we're going to be able to get them caught up um, fast enough. Incidentally, one other thing, and Lucy, I think, characterized the educational piece really, really yeah, well. Yeah, she really did, yeah. There's a lot of private schools that are open that are making this work with social distancing rules, Catholic schools specifically, that you're not seeing major infection rates. And this, again, people who can afford to send their kids to private school now don't have the same burden of those that cannot, and their children are in school learning, while those that are not at the lower end of the economic rung and the lower ladder, and I'm not making a, 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 a judgment about unions because I think it's a tough decision too, like Lucy said, but the truth of the matter is public schools are open at lower rates than yeah. private schools. The people in private schools have advantages already by and large, yeah. and they're exacerbating that lead. So this, the next 90 days of what we actually do to reconcile this is going to be definitive for the next generation of young people. Yeah. I think, you know, with one of the most important takeaways here 
for me is the contrast between the, you know, essentially the vacuum of debate and dialogue that we had before we had a President Biden, before we had the Biden administration, yeah. and the conversations that we're able to have right here, right now, about the conversations that are happening uh, ar- around around all of these questions. And the reality is that there is a there there are legitimate disagreements and tensions about policy and public interest, where everyone everyone wants what's best for children and teachers and the community. And they're actively thinking about those interests. And there's a whole lot more listening going on and a whole lot less pontificating by a commander in chief who governs by Twitter. Um, is that is that, is that accurate? Does that feel like where we are at least? Like we yeah. don't have the, the answers I, I, here, I, but I, yeah, if I but, could, I, yeah, I, I think that is, I, look, I think there's a certain relief, right? That we're actually dealing with it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. And there's just, it's like, okay, like, what are we dealing like, with? At least like, we're before, talking about fixing these things now. Yeah. And right. having policy, just dis, policy yeah. discussions like that matters. And there's yeah. people who are actually going to try to make this thing work. Yeah. One of the quick one of the quick items, if I could just interject, is that there's also this emerging idea that the Roaring Twenties we knew in the 1920s, which were the you know flappers and speakeasies uh-huh. and kind of this time, really came after the end of World War One. Yeah, I think we're reexamining. I'm saying thinking about that. Really I'm glad came, you're bringing this up. Yeah, it came as a result of the end of the pandemic, That's right. which was far That's greater. Right. It was people were in isolation for a couple of years. Right. It was far greater than the loss of life that we saw in World War. One is that's what created yeah. the Roaring Twenties, and we may be on the verge of a oh, new another Roaring Twenties. That's right, a hundred years later. Yeah, uh, interesting. I'm so argument. glad you brought that up because I think about it periodically, and and you know that it it also for me it dovetails with the you know with our conversations about the new Southern strategy and how history is you know echoing itself, maybe not repeating, but it's yeah. definitely this is this very yeah. much feels like an echo of that. Yeah. All right. Now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week, I have a new question to close us out with. So what stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or our listeners might have missed, but also that will influence our politics in a way we might not expect? Mike, do you want to lead us off? Well, I'm, I'm, I hate to do this, but I'm going to yeah. say that what I just mentioned was because, you know, that topic was something I wanted to stick in there because I thought it is yeah. so fascinating, yeah. this new new discussion. I, I do believe as difficult uh, as our politics are going to get, and I do believe that the next uh, decade, two decades actually, will be defined by more violence, more upheaval, more aggression, and a lot of people trying to tear our institutions down. I also believe equally that we are on the verge of a creative renaissance where we're going to see our social norms dramatically change as we emerge from this pandemic. So what I will say is I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it sure is going to be really interesting. And you're going to get some great guests on the Politicology podcast as a result, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Lucy, how about you? Here are two stories that I think have been a little under the radar that I think are going to become more interesting. One is in the category of horse race politics, which I know no one ever gets burnt out of ever. (laughs) But uh, it's funny because it involves um, a prominent election lawyer, uh, Mark Elias, who's the Mm. guy who some of your listeners remember is the person that Lou Dobbs said to a a Trump aide in an interview, why can't Trump's team just go pay Mark Elias $500 million to be on our side, which is so funny because he is a very principled guy and he had fun with that. But he is um, involved in a case in Iowa's second congressional district, which is Southeastern Iowa. It was a 
a district that was decided by six votes. And uh, it's the, the candidates were a Republican named Marionette Miller Meeks and a Democrat named Rita Hart. The the if you need a story of how your vote actually does matter, it's this because she was Miller Meeks was declared the winner provisionally seated in early January. Again, six votes difference. And now uh, Rita Hart's team, uh, led by Elias, has said, we've found like two dozen new votes. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's but it's really interesting because it brings up some kind of weird issues like, look, these votes weren't properly counted. And so now both sides are trying to find votes that weren't properly counted. And it's it's revealed some kind of weird, ugly things like uh, now the Republican, the winner, the victor is saying things like, well, we can't count every vote. You can't count every (laughs) vote properly. And and I have no doubt that if the roles were reversed, each side could make these arguments, but it's kind of crazy. So that's developing. It's in court. The the uh, one other issue that I think we should keep looking at is I'm still paying a lot of attention to the fallout from the Robin Hood mm, uh, Reddit yeah. v Wall Street episode. And next week, next Thursday, the Robin Hood CEO, as well as a whole bunch of executives from hedge funds like Melvin Capital and Citadel, are going to be trotted out in a House Financial Services um, hearing of which Maxine Waters is chair and they will be accounting for what's going to happen. Yeah. Robin Hood just also sort of also under the radar, just registered to um, just registered a lobbying team um, just (laughs) less than a week ago. And I think that um, the way that, you know, we'll see what does our new financial landscape look like, right? Is Robin Hood, the good guys, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, or are they something different? And you know, we began this by talking about the way that parties and, you know, just end up becoming entities to perpetuate themselves um, at all at all costs, you know, regardless of the fallout. That's human behavior. That's all that's organizational that's right. psychology. That's right. um, and so looking at some of these forces at play, I think we'll have we can look at the the Robin Hood episode as as one of those and see what we find out. That is such a good point. I'm now I'm really looking forward to that. Maybe we'll discuss that next week. My uh thing that I want to mention is definitely, you know, decidedly not traditionally political anyway, but I watched Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself on Hulu and I I'm I'm almost speechless. And so if there probably there will be a handful of listeners who've watched this now and had similar experiences, but I can't say enough about it. It's, it, it sat with me. It was, is one of the most beautiful pieces of performance art that is deeply political without being, without being what most people would call political at all. And I don't want to ruin it for anyone. I just, if you, if you, if you can find 90 minutes to yourself, turn off your phone, turn off your computers, be distraction free. If, if you have that, if you have that luxury, do it. And, and I guarantee, I guarantee you won't regret it. It's going to sit with you. It's going to do something to you. And, um, and that's that. I don't want to say any more about it. And, and maybe, maybe if you guys haven't seen it yet, maybe we'll talk about it in, in future episodes. But I think it, I think that, uh, it's, it's flown under the radar so far. It's not going to stay under the radar for long. And for me, it's one of those pieces I don't want to compare it directly to Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, but in the way, if you watch that piece, 
in the way that she essentially revolutionized the art form by bringing by bringing something extremely real and vulnerable about her vulnerable about herself to change the audience through the process that is what Derek Delgadio did in this piece and it really makes you think about identity and the way we interact with each other as human beings and the labels we apply to one another and and i and it, it that's what i mean by deeply political so convince me yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. For that. I I can't wait to Watch hear what you weekend. think. Um, before I let you go, where can everyone find you on the internet, Mike? Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. Lucy, you can find me on Twitter too, Lucy M Caldwell. Awesome, and I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation, and thank you to everyone either at home or on the go uh, for listening. We have a new email address, so if you have questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, it would help tremendously if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We have a lot more on the horizon, including new ways to engage, and I can't wait to tell you more. But for now, I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>